0: Well, let me add my welcome. Welcome to St. Peter's, to our online service here. My name's Lloyd, and I'm one of the pastors here, and it's great to have you with us um, today. Uh, Whatever time you're watching, and wherever you're watching from, it's great to have you here. Were you ever asked this question? What do you want to do when you grow up? I wonder if you had any annoying uncles or aunties who would ask you that question, I would answer, I I don't know. I've literally just learned to tie my shoelaces and you're asking me to to talk about my future career. I think that's a little unrealistic. A better question might be for us, what do you want to be when you grow up? Or even better, who do you want to be when you grow up? And that's what we are are looking at um, a bit today. We're looking from the perspective of the preacher. He's playing the role of that annoying uncle, but not to provoke a response or to get information from us or just to get us talking, but he asks us so that he can share some hard-earned wisdom to us. He asks good questions that make us think. Who do you want to be when you grow up? He says, what you do now matters. doesn't matter how old you are, where in life you are, We all feel as if we're in a stage of growing up. No one thinks that we've made it. But he says to us, what you do now matters. You see, all that comes is vanity, he says. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Remember, we've looked at this in the past um, when we were looking through uh, the previous chapters. The Hebrew word for vanity here is literally breath. And so there are connotations of frustration and worthlessness, but also mystery and unknowableness. And I think most pertinent for us is the sense of fleeting and transience. And so when the preacher says that everything is breath, he's not saying that everything is meaningless or pointless. He's saying that life is temporary. It evaporates. It slips away. Life is like a breath. So if life is like that... Isn't it silly to think too much about the future? Thomas Merton uses this metaphor to get to the point. People may spend their whole lives climbing the ladder of success only to find, once they reach the top, that the ladder is leaning against the wrong wall. The question is, therefore, for us, what's it going to look like at the end for us? Where's our ladder leaning? In this passage, we're given a picture of the end and told to live in light of that end, to live a certain way before that time comes. So as we do that, why don't we pray before we begin? Heavenly Father, we come before you as a speaking God and we ask that you would speak to us by your spirit today, that um, the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing to you, that we'd see you as uh, our rock and our redeemer pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, there are two things, um, two main things for us today. The first is rejoice and the second is remember. Rejoice and remember. Rejoice in goodness and remember God. Rejoice in goodness. Let me read verse 7 to 8. It quite nicely recaps where we've been returning to in Ecclesiastes. It says this, Light is sweet and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Verse 7 is saying this. What a pleasure to see the light of day. Isn't it great to be alive? It's that feeling when you jump out of bed and you are delighted to see another day. Or if you're older, one of those days where you don't creak out of bed. I've started creaking these days as I do the simplest of tasks. It's good to be alive, the, the, the preacher recognizes. And so if you've got many years, the preacher says, rejoice in them all. Enjoy every minute. Life is beautiful. Breath is precious. Light is radiant. But... But, the rest of verse 8 says, let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. Remember this amidst your rejoicing, that the darkness looms, that there will be many days of darkness ahead. And darkness here can mean difficulties in general or difficulties as old age or death come closer. Or to remember that all that comes is vanity. But before we think The preacher of Ecclesiastes is only a half empty kind of guy. He emphasizes this command to us. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, rejoice. And let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Rejoice, enjoy, be joyful, be glad and find enjoyment. Rejoice. And so speaking to this young man, a mentee or a protege, he says something that is relevant to us all, regardless of gender. Rejoice. You who are young, make the most of your youth. Relish your youthful vigour. Follow the impulses of your heart. If something looks good to you, pursue it. And so this is not an invitation to unhindered pleasure-seeking for its own sake, but to be pursued within the boundaries set by goodness and virtues. Boundaries set by God. And so we're not surprised when we hear the next verse say, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Pleasure and happiness are desirable, of course, but for their own sake or on their own, they end up being hollow and empty. These end up being addictive because there is this ever-increasing desire for an ever-decreasing feeling of pleasure of happiness or happiness. No, joy, it seems, is, is different. It's made of different stuff. Derek Kidner, the commentator, says joy was, no, was created to dance with goodness, not alone. Joy was created to dance with goodness, not alone. So joy comes when goodness is at the centre. When there's a well done said by a creator. We are to dance with and rejoice in goodness. We are to have our hearts and eyes so shaped to the ways of God that we walk with freedom and therefore rejoicing. And that's the picture that we're given here. Now, it's natural to read this, I think, and to think, rejoice, but not too much, since you're going to be judged. That's what I would naturally come to in this this verse. But what if it's saying something more about rejoicing? What if the preacher is saying, rejoice, but that this is a command, not just a cherry on top nicety that is not that important to the Christian life, like a marshmallow on a hot chocolate, but a command for which we are going to be held accountable. What if by delighting in the goodness of God, we are acting more like God himself? What if rejoicing mirrors the Trinitarian self-giving love of God more than when we try and be dutiful and obedient? What if we are commanded to rejoice, called to enjoy life, exhorted to delight, to be serious about rejoicing? to see enjoyment as a gift from God. And like all other gifts, we are responsible to God for what we do with it. Now, it might seem strange to us to think like this. Perhaps you've not heard of this before, but perhaps that says more about us than about God himself. You see, God is good. His law is good. His commands are good for us. And so Psalm 19, 8 says this. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. We are to rejoice in God. We are to rejoice in his law. We are to rejoice in the goodness of God. In a book called To You and Your Children, Douglas Jones reflects on Deuteronomy 27 to 30. He gets stuck on this particular verse, Deuteronomy twenty eight forty seven because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and lacking everything. You see, they were punished for not serving God with joy and gladness. There was something heinous and something really wrong about that. And so um, Jones writes this, Joy and gladness, since when has that been the pivot of reality? Certainly this has to be a divine typo, he sarcastically jokes. I don't pretend to understand the full weight of this claim, but we should be obsessed with finding out, obsessed with making it the very centre of our lives and cultures. At the very least, we should get better, um, we should better grasp the place of joy and gladness of heart in the Christian life. Rejoice in goodness, Rejoice and be glad. How are we to do this? We're to walk in the ways of our hearts and in the sight of our eyes, it says. It seems like this could be literal as well as metaphorical. Yes, it means to follow the promptings of our heart as we live or to think through what we'll do and then do it. But I think, couldn't it also mean that we're to walk, venture and to explore? to go with our feet where our hearts take us and use our eyes to walk and to wonder. Our family has been walking a lot more around our neighborhood during this uh, season and we've been learning a lot about plants together. Uh, Josiah, our four-year-old son, has taken on this role that he calls a flower detective. And we've been learning about Mediterranean spurge and red hot poker torch lilies and woolly hedge nettle and I was out for a walk with him only last week, and he just burst out into prayer. He said, thank you God for creating such a beautiful world for us to enjoy. Thank you God for creating this world so beautifully that we can enjoy it. Now this is serious stuff. Serious stuff for a four year old, but it's serious stuff for us as well. We are commanded to rejoice. And we can start small, we can start young. In the days of our youth, we are to rejoice. Even a four-year-old on a walk around his house looking at flowers can do it. I wonder in what ways can we do it? In what ways can we start small and, and rejoice and see it as a command to do it with diligence and tenacity to rejoice in the goodness of God? Well, we're also given guidance in verse 10. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are are vanity. As we rejoice in goodness, we're also to remove vexation, to avoid and turn away from anything that prevents rejoicing. Whether it's trouble we can avoid or discontent or frustration, we're to put those aside. We're to put away pain from our body, not to let pain prevent us from rejoicing. Or to put those aside, to refuse to give these power to prevent us from rejoicing. Why? Because youth and the dawn of life are, are so fleeting. Like breath, it goes away quickly. And if life is so breath-like and transient, we should, while we can, rejoice in goodness. Rejoice in goodness in a serious way to do it with all that we can and all that we have. What would it look like for you to rejoice in goodness? Seriously, tenaciously. We should also remember next to remember God. Chapter 12, verse 1 says this Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth. Remember your Creator. Now, using this word Creator, this name is not accidental. It's not like the preacher was going through a list of uh, the names of God in a name thesaurus and his finger just so happened upon creator. No, creator is deliberate here. We're to remember God, our creator. You see, we're being told that the doctrine of creation is the soil of a life lived well. Doctrine of creation is the soil of a life lived well because it's like a trellis. The doctrine of Creation frames how we see God and how we see ourselves and shapes the direction of how our lives grow. Notice the reference um, to the sun and light and moon and stars in verse 2 and the dust and spirit of verse 7. They're taking us back to Genesis. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created. God is creator. Remembering him as creator is to remember that God made a good world. Good, 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 very good. Remembering God as creator reminds us that we are uh, creatures too. Beloved creatures, uniquely loved creatures, but but creatures who are part of creation nonetheless. Made from the dust of the earth and given the breath of God and made in his image. And so as we read uh, verses 1 to 7, we are to remember that God, the creator alone, sees the full picture fully. And while we cannot figure out exactly what has been done from beginning to end, that's okay. He knows what he's doing. He's the creator. He sees the beginning from the end. He stands outside and is able to to give meaning and life and hope to us. You see, we lose perspective when we forget that he is the creator and we are creatures. When that happens, we believe that we're in charge of what happens and we have the power to control our days And so wisdom is to remember God as creator and foolishness actually is to forget that and to anxiously believe that we can mold life and this world into our image and into our shape. As we remember God as creator, we remember creation as it was intended to be and to hold on to that as we experience life in its fallenness and decay. And so the preacher exhorts us, remember God as creator now, before darkness comes and you can't actually remember anymore. And so in our passage, we have this word before three times in verses 1 and 8. Remember your creator in the days of your youth, verse 1, before the the days of evil come. Remember your creator in the days of your youth, verse 2, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened. Remember your creator in the days of your youth, verse 6, before the silver cord is snapped. There is urgency here. Remember God as creator before old age and death come. Come to us all. This seems to be this recurring picture here in the poetic, almost apocalyptic imagery that is painted here. Remember your creator before the evil days come and the years draw near. The days that feel long, but the years that feel so quick before they pass you by and you have no pleasure in them. Remember your creator. Remember your creator before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain, before what has been made begins to be unmade, before the lights go out in your senses, in your hospital room, in your world, in your relationships. Remember your creator. And so the pictures keep coming. Some see these um, as allegorical references to the body deteriorating and, and decaying. But while it's quite fun to see um, grinders as teeth or windows as eyes or doors uh, being shut as ears, I don't think we even need to go there to get the gist of what's going on in this passage. There is this decreasing of activity, of deterioration, of decay. And so from the sky and the stars, we come to a house in verse 3 and 4. It's a sorry state. The keepers of the house are trembling, the strong men stoop low and are strong no more. The grinders who are female servants are are few and those in the windows are dimmed like an old photo. And on on the street, the doors are closed. There is not much grinding or activity or song left. Only early mornings and the light sleep of old age. The pictures continue in verse 5. People are afraid to fall from any kind of height. The blossom of the almond tree is white and so mirrors white hair and comes in the winter, talking about death. The grasshopper looks like he's been smoking grass, not hopping on grass like a grasshopper should. He's going slowly, decrepitly. And desire falls. Appetites, sexual or otherwise, fail because death awaits. And the only activity that is going on is for the funeral preparations as mourners go to and fro. Then in verse six, the final before, remember your creator before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the picture is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern. These utensils have no more use. They can't do what they were made to do. Water can't be got anymore. And it's a sad picture, a bleak one. One that reminds me of the hardship of getting old in a culture that prizes shininess and productiveness and usefulness. We are asked, what will we do when we are no longer useful and productive and shiny? Well, I guess for all of us, it depends, right? Because one day we will grow old and approach death. The question that the preacher is gently asking us is this. Before that day, how are you going to live? Before those things happen, what will you be doing? He says, rejoice in goodness and remember your creator. And so we come to the end of our passage. Verse 7 gives a cyclical feel to these pictures of old age and death, reminding us of Genesis 1. The word dust. Dust that we have life because God has breathed life into us. And although we don't fully know how close to these pictures of old age and and death we are, we can be sure of a creator who knows the beginning and the end and who knows our beginning and our end and that we can trust him. There's also a neatness to verse 8. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And it's what the preacher started off saying in chapter 1, verse 2. Same words used there. And so he finishes his exploration of wisdom. He finishes where he started. And we are asked then, where do we place ourselves in this picture? The preacher is here speaking to a young man, but he speaks to us all, I think. By youth, the preacher might mean anyone who has not yet entered this kind of stage of old age and of death that we see in in chapter 12. And so there remains opportunity for us all. The question is, Who do you want to be when you grow up? I mean it. Think about it. Because who you want to be at the end should affect how you live your life now. Because we all grow older. But not everyone grows softer and kinder. For every gentle, warm and lovely older person you meet, there are probably many more stuck in their homes, alone, bitter, regretful and shut off. The preacher says it matters what you do now While you can. Here's another angle. What will it look like for you to die well? What will it look like for you to die well? What if a big part of discipleship was to learn how to die well? David Gibson suggests thinking about dying well by living life backwards. In his book, Living Life Backwards, the subtitle is Ecclesiastes, how Ecclesiastes teaches us to live in light of the end. He says this, Ecclesiastes teaches us to live life backwards, encourages us to take the one thing in the future that is certain, our death, and work backward from that point into all the details and decisions and heartaches of our lives and to think about them from the perspective of the end. Ecclesiastes invites us to let the end sculpt our priorities and goals, our greatest ambitions and our strongest desires, end quote. David Brooks, an author who wrote The Road to Character, describes it like this. It occurred to me that there are two sets of virtues, the resume virtues and the eulogy virtues. The resume virtues are the skills you bring to the marketplace the eulogy virtues are the ones that are talked about at your funeral. Whether you were kind, brave, honest or faithful, were you, able to, were you capable of deep love? We all know that the eulogy virtues are more important than the resume ones. But our culture and our educational systems spend more time teaching the skills and strategies you need for career success than the qualities you need to radiate that sort of inner light. Many of us are clearer on how to build an external career than on how to build inner character. So what's going to be said at your funeral? What will you do now that will affect how you come to the end of your life? Who are you going to be when you grow up? Because that time will come for us all. The question is, what will you be like when you get there? I can answer that in part now. If right now you're grumpy and bad-tempered and really difficult to be around, it's very likely that when you get older, you're going to be grumpy, bad-tempered, and a drag to be around then too. If you're obsessed with money now, you're going to be obsessed with money then, even though you might not need it then. Of course, God does do miracles. He can transform us with the blink of an eye if he chooses to do that. But that's not the normal way it happens. I hope as much as the next person that we discover ways to download and install things into ourselves so that you and I can learn Kung Fu and ice skating instantly and that we can kind of be joyful and kind and have all the fruit of the Spirit as quickly as it takes to download an operating system on our computers. I wish that to be the case. But until then, there are slow and sure ways to prepare for the end. We are to be people who, now, while we can, rejoice in the goodness of God and creation. And now, while we can, remember God who is our creator. This is why we stress at St. Peter's rhythms and practices, habits and postures. Rhythms that are inward and upward and outward. Practices that confess that rest, that doxologize, habits that set alarm clock, that pray, that that do the daily offices, postures of stillness or of kneeling or of silence. These are so that they get into our bones, so that they become part of us, so that they can't be taken away from us even when everything else has been taken away from us. Because if you have habits, rhythms, practices in place, then time and the passing of time becomes your ally. All you need is patience. But if you don't have these, then time is your enemy. You're always grasping for more. The passing of time is a curse, and you'll fight every step of the way until the end creeps upon you. I had an old friend called Tom. Some of you will have heard me talk about him. We would go around and visit him. He was around um, 90-odd, and Margaret, his wife, did lovely cakes, and so we would visit very often. He had the loveliest smile, and we'd be chatting about something, and then he'd forget what he had been talking about, and then he would smile. Often when he forgot what he was talking about, he would repeat this line from Amazing Grace. Grace has brought me safe thus far and grace will lead me home. Grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. It was beautiful whenever he forgot what he was saying. His first reaction, what blurted out of him, was that line from that hymn. Can you imagine how many times he must have had to repeat this so that in his old age, forgetting what he was talking about, that that was what came out of him? That's a lot of of rejoicing. That's a lot of singing. That's a lot of remembering there in Tom's youth. So that when it came time for him to die, he died well. That when he died, he realized that death wasn't um, something to be resisted and to be fought against, but that he was being taken home. That grace was um, leading him home not through his own effort, but by the amazing grace of his saviour, Jesus Christ. So that by the time it came to the end of his life, the end of his days, and for those who fall asleep in Christ, who have rejoiced, who have remembered their creator, that we can say at their graveside these words, that are part of the funeral liturgy. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy, slow to anger and of great goodness. As a father is tender towards his children, so is the Lord tender to those that fear him. For he knows of what we are made. He remembers that we are but dust. Our days are like the grass. We flourish like a flower of the field. When the wind goes over it, it is gone and its place will know it no more. But the merciful goodness of the Lord endures forever and ever toward those that fear him and his righteousness upon their children's children. We have entrusted them to God's mercy, and now we commit this body to the ground, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Ensure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our frail bodies that they may be conformed to his glorious body, who died, was buried, and rose again for us. To him be glory forever and ever, amen.